The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, March 27th. In today's news, it was the worst week for our economy in decades, and the pain is just beginning. President Trump clashes with governors over relaxing restrictions, and medical workers rush to update their wills and plan their own funerals in case they don't survive this pandemic. But first, the big idea. New York City received 6,406 emergency 911 calls on Tuesday. It was the highest volume ever recorded in that city in a single day, surpassing the number of 911 calls made on September 11th, 2001. Sadly, they broke that record again on Wednesday and then on Thursday. The EMS in New York was on track to get 7,000 calls by midnight. Everyone I'm talking to in New York says they hear the hunting sirens of ambulances all night long from Queens to Brooklyn to Manhattan. More than half our country's coronavirus cases are in the New York metro area. It is the hottest of hot spots. Once again, 19 years after September 11th, New York finds itself again as ground zero. As a country, we passed several grim milestones yesterday. The U.S. now has more than 1,000 deaths stemming from COVID-19. We surged past 82,000 reported cases, eclipsing China and Italy. We now have more cases than any other country in the world. Worldwide, the death toll has eclipsed 23,000, and the total number of confirmed cases crossed half a million, with few signs of slowing. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson just announced this morning on Twitter that he has tested positive. Johnson says he has mild symptoms and is self-isolating, but will continue to lead the government's response via video conferencing. In New York alone, more than 38,000 people have now tested positive, an increase of 6,500 from Wednesday. And remember, many people still can't get tests who have symptoms. Of those who have tested positive in New York, 5,327 of them are hospitalized, and 1,300 are in intensive care units. New York has 53,000 available hospital beds, but will soon require 140,000, according to Governor Andrew Cuomo. The state still desperately needs ventilators and is making do by connecting two patients to a single ventilator. A makeshift morgue is under construction outside one Manhattan hospital, Officials are building 1,000 bed facilities in each of the five boroughs and in four counties, and they're considering converting dormitories that have been vacated by schools closing down and putting hotel rooms that are vacant because people aren't traveling to New York to emergency use. One of the medical surge centers that's being set up is inside the six-block-long Jacob Javits Convention Center on the west side of Manhattan, It's better known for hosting auto shows, Comic-Con, and Hillary Clinton's election night party in 2016. At least 65 New York nurses have now tested positive for the virus, taking them off the front lines of the fight. Expectant mothers going into labor at hospitals in New York now must give birth without their husbands or partners. They've been barred from entering the labor and delivery floors for fear of spreading the contagion. It's just the women. But it's important to emphasize that it's not just New York. Every area of our country is affected. 
Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards said yesterday that he is terrified about the exponential rise in cases in his state, including one of the highest mortality rates in the country. Louisiana reported 510 new cases yesterday, bringing its total to 2,300. Louisiana also reported 18 more deaths, many of them in New Orleans. The state's overall death toll is now 83. One of the people who died yesterday was a 17-year-old from Orleans Parish. Officials believe Mardi Gras accelerated the spread. A lot of people got infected during the various celebrations and then spread it around. Debbie Burks, the White House's coronavirus response coordinator, said last night that federal officials are keeping a close eye on Detroit and Chicago as our next potential hotspots. President Trump, meanwhile, repeated his idea of reopening economic activity in parts of the country with few confirmed cases, even as every serious public health official warns that prematurely returning to normal activity will exacerbate the virus's spread and lead to more Americans dying. Vice President Pence says the task force will present various options to Trump over the weekend. Yesterday, I mentioned that animal shelters in the Big Apple are emptying out because people are taking in cats and dogs to comfort themselves in these depressing times. Another silver lining in New York is that the crime rate has plummeted in the city, just like after 9-11. Last week, New York City recorded a single murder compared with eight the week before. Burglaries and assaults are also way, way down. We'll take what we can get. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the record 3.3 million jobless claims reported yesterday by the federal government mark the beginning of an economic crisis facing workers and business, a slump that experts say will only end when the virus itself is contained. Our economy has entered a deep recession that has echoes of the Great Depression in the way it's devastated so many businesses and consumers by triggering mass layoffs and threatening to set off a chain reaction of bankruptcies and financial defaults for companies large and small. It remains a wide open question whether this will become a long lasting slump or a short lived flash recession. We all hope for the latter. Economists say the new jobless claims, which reflect workers seeking unemployment insurance last week, not this week, is the start of a massive spike in unemployment that could result in over 40 million Americans losing their jobs by mid-April. Although no official figures exist yet, the unemployment rate is likely jumped to at least 5.5%. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said yesterday that we may already well be in a recession. And a new Washington Post-ABC News poll out this morning shows the pandemic has disrupted the most American lives. Almost overnight, the threat from the virus changed habits and lifestyles. Nine in 10 Americans say they're staying home as much as possible and practicing social distancing. More than three in four say their life has been disrupted, with half the population now saying there has been a lot of disruption to their personal life. Stress levels in America are higher today than they were at any time during the Great Recession that followed the financial collapse of 2008. Seven in 10 Americans say in our poll, that the virus is a source of that stress, one in three Americans say the virus is causing severe stress. Number two, as Trump insisted that Americans are eager to go back to work and advised all 50 governors in a letter that his administration is developing new guidelines that will categorize the risk level for each county in the nation, governors lashed out and clapped back at the president. During a private conference call with the 50 governors, 
Washington Governor Jay Inslee pleaded with Trump to take more dramatic federal action to secure the medical supplies that his state needs. After Trump told the group that his administration is ready to play the role of backup for the states in crisis, Inslee interjected and said, quote, we don't need a backup. We need a Tom Brady. Though the president has faced mounting bipartisan calls to use his powers to compel private companies to help, he said he's employing the Defense Production Act as leverage to win voluntary cooperation. The president's re-election campaign yesterday tweeted a list of corporations, including 3M, that have said they will increase production of needed supplies. Behind the scenes, business lobbyists have asked Trump not to invoke the law, and conservative advisors have warned the president that doing so would draw a backlash and could cut into his argument that he's running against socialism in the fall. House leaders are trying to pass the $2 trillion stimulus package today. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy agreed to approve the measure with a voice vote on Friday that would not require all the members of the House to travel to the Capitol, given that two lawmakers have contracted the disease and others are self-quarantining due to exposure to confirmed carriers. But then at least one member is considering upending plans for swift passage. Congressman Tom Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, said he's opposed to the bill, which was approved unanimously by the Senate because it would add too much to the national debt. The libertarian lawmakers also concerned that voting without a quorum present, meaning the majority of the House chamber, would violate the Constitution. He says he's yet to decide whether to press the issue, which could delay a final vote until late Saturday night or Sunday. Pelosi says she's ready to use parliamentary tricks to defeat the effort. Number three. Doctors and nurses are rushing to update their wills and plan their own funerals in case they can't get out of this alive. The first time Andrea Austin, only 35 years old, considered her own mortality, she was flying into Iraq aboard a C-130 cargo plane. Though the emergency medicine physician had set up a living will and power of attorney before her seven-month deployment with a shock and trauma team, Entering a war zone crystallized for her the dangers of that job. Now, three years later, she is again weighing worst-case scenarios as she continues treating patients, this time at the USC Medical Center in Los Angeles, where the disease is spreading at an alarming rate. Andrea wrote down which of her fellow doctors she would entrust with end-of-life care. She made clear her preference for cremation, and she compiled her funeral playlist, starting with Somewhere Over the Rainbow. She says that if there's a slideshow played at her funeral, she wants it set to Megan Trainer's Badass Woman. For the end of the ceremony, she chose Stevie Wonder's Ava Maria. Then she stored the details on a Google Drive and shared the files with her husband and her brother. She tells us, quote, My fear of dying is worse now than it was when I was in Iraq. As we wrap up this week, I want to respond to something that's been coming up in my emails and social media mentions. A few of you have said this podcast is too dark. Some have even said you're thinking about unsubscribing because it's a downer to listen. I just want to let you know that I am as depressed as anybody about all this news. It's painful to cover the fallout from this contagion. But I also want to say that we cannot control the news. We can only report it. And my solemn commitment to you, the listener, is that I will always tell it straight. I will capture the world as it is, not as I want it to be. And I will never sugarcoat 
hard truths. I will also continue to look for the silver linings as we get through this, and we will get through it, together. Here's one. Clapping is now a big thing. With people stir-crazy in their locked-down homes, the phenomenon of stepping onto the balcony in the evening, flinging open the windows, and applauding healthcare workers fighting the coronavirus on the front lines has gone global. Part bomb, part defiance, part celebration. We're still here. The practice has migrated alongside the virus from the Chinese epicenter of Wuhan to the medieval villages of Lombardy, from Milan to Madrid, on to Paris and now London. In Britain last night, millions of people came out at 8 p.m. sharp to cheer the staff of the country's National Health Service, whose ICUs and emergency wings are being overwhelmed as already exhausted nurses, some wearing garbage bags to work, are begging for more and better protective equipment. There have been standing ovations too in Istanbul, Atlanta, Buenos Aires, and India. We can be frustrated that our medical systems are overwhelmed, but proud of the heroic doctors and nurses who are doing all they can to save lives. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, March 27th. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you on Monday.